Welcome to the audio podcast, the weekly sermon of the First Presbyterian Church of Brooklyn. We continue our multi-access worship both online and our recently renovated sanctuary. Sunday morning service is in person at 11 a.m. and we are live on firstchurchbrooklyn.org as well as the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Now, this week's message. Let me pray before I begin. Dear God, my greatest love, I need you this morning. All I want is to do your will. I died long ago, and this is the only thing that animates my spirit. All else is the rigor mortis of my flesh. So correct me, discipline me, disciple me into someone who understands what it means to be a peacemaker. Dispose of me this morning, God. Pull the weight out of wrong words and let your spirit speak in my place. And help my hearers to know the difference. Help them to parse from my words the frailty of my flesh and the peace you are trying to prophesy and destroy in me whatever does not lead us to love. Amen. These past couple of weeks have been full of terrors, fresh and new in every moment. An original claim made over and over on our nauseated stomachs, on our twisting minds grasping for comprehension, on our overused and now fully spent emotional resources, on our flagging and perhaps even totally defeated capacity for hope. This is the pain of being in love with the world in love with creation in all its forms. This is the pain of seeing holy bodies desecrated and holy land destroyed. And as deeply as this is felt for us, our grief can't compare a hair's breadth to the world-ending pain of those who are living through this war. But we need our own guidance this morning our own sense of direction, and our own hope if we are to be useful to the suffering at all. On October 7th, over 1,300 Israeli soldiers and civilians were killed by Palestinian insurgents. This number washes over us again and again, still incomprehensible, unfathomable, 1,300 lives massified into a singularity, reduced to an event, entombed into a mass grave of memory that erases the particularity of each holy life. I hate that clean number of 1,300. I hate that little plus sign that comes after it, these infinitely valuable lives consolidated and concealed behind a symbol. 
These were people who had inside jokes with those closest to them. They had stupid insecurities that their friends tried to dissuade them from. They looked up at the night sky and wondered if their lovers saw the same moon. They had birthmarks in secret places. They had peculiar senses of humor and their laughs were contagious. They held in themselves dreams and great power. So it's difficult. It's, mourn, it's, it's painful to mourn these deaths, but it's also easy to grieve for them in another sense because it's easy to see their humanity. It's easy to see their value. Our hearts break and we are drawn to grief and then drawn to action. We decry this outrageous violence and this response is as natural as anything. We understand that we have an obligation in light of their suffering. But since that moment, as the world grieved, as sensitive hearts tore with the reports of unspeakable atrocity, I began to observe a new terror. I began to see in the wor words of world leaders an ugly form of racism and bloodthirst that I recall from my fundamentalist days. I was raised a Christian Zionist. My parents would go to the Holy Land as often as they could, and they brought me back Israeli Defense Forces t-shirts to wear as a child. We watched Zionist films in church. I remember seeing grainy footage of Ben-Gurion tending to his parcel of land. And I observed what I understood to be the beauty of a people returned to their home. I watched the Iron Dome grab missiles out of the sky like God's own hand, protecting his people. I saw David facing Goliath and winning, and I understood the cosmic significance. I understood the dispensationalist theology of our community. I knew that the Jewish people must return to their homeland, and this meant that Jesus would return too. My parents affirmed all of this, recounting the beauties of this sacred land, the hope of the rapture, and the leery stares of Palestinians. Folded into one another were the pre- and post-9-11 wars with the Arab world that arranged the political climate of the early aughts and complemented the Israeli theater. I was taught that there was this force of evil in the world, the psychotic desire to see the West fall, a demonic plan to inspire terror in the hearts of all good people to destroy the Christian world, which was another way of saying the white world. This was the racism that justified the deaths of 500,000 Iraqi children in the 90s. Atoll Madeleine Albright said was justified. In response, the architects of 9-11 believed 3,000 deaths to be justified. We then initiated the deaths of over 4.5 million through ensuing wars. It was in and through this atmosphere that I was taught that Palestinians were a part of this Antichrist alliance, which deserved all of America's and all of God's wrath, which of course were supposed to be the same thing. I'd read the Bible. They were the Philistines. 
haplessly living in the land that had been promised to the Israelites. They were the Canaanites that needed to be driven out by any means. Israelites told to kill every breathing thing, as Joshua did to the best of his ability. This political theology with which I was indoctrinated was not only deeply anti-Arab, it was also profoundly anti-Semitic. It used Jewish people as pawns, positioning them for an apocalyptic war that would destroy most of them, laying the ground for Jesus to return, all according to prophecy. So we pretended to love Jewish people and openly hated Muslims. These past two weeks, I've seen these sentiments slashing through pundits, pontifications, and personal conversations. I've seen people twisting in agony at the thought of innocent death, and then suddenly, when those deaths become Palestinian, those feelings are suddenly hard to find. Innocence is suddenly a contested category. I've watched incredulously as classic racist tropes flicker across ticker tape shirens and folks drink them in, having learned nothing apparently from books on Islamophobia, having no critical capacity for evaluating propaganda, no awareness of their own anti-Arab racism, no contextual understanding of a 75-year-old conflict beating a genocidal drum that is now destroyed. 4,500 Palestinian lives in two weeks. These precious ones, massified to, reduced to numerals, a statistic, a toll, when they had their own inside jokes with people who felt safe to them, and stupid insecurities that their friends tried to dissuade them from, they also looked at the night sky and the moon and tried to find their lover's reflection in its face. They had delicate birthmarks in secret places. They had peculiar senses of humor and contagious laughs. They held in themselves dreams and great power. And so did all who passed before them. So the question that's been on my mind is this. Where has our outrage been? Our moral concern, our grief. Why have we never felt this weight before as a country or to a person when the horrors of October 7th have been the horrors of Palestinians for 75 years? What does it mean that their pain did not concern us? At least not in a way that really mattered. The Palestinian ambassador to the UK was asked to condemn the violence of Hamas, and he refused. He said, I will condemn when you condemn. He went on to say that Israeli officials are never brought on television to answer for the everyday and generational violences of occupation. He said, you do this, and I will be the first to condemn. But he wouldn't concede the asymmetry being imposed upon him and his people. He believed that we would not see, we could not see terror when it was Palestinians who suffered it. And so he refused the premise of the moral claim asked of him, believing that his words wouldn't 
sudden, win a sudden acknowledgement of Palestinian humanity, but would only be used to justify more violence against his people. You may disagree with his approach, but you can't disagree with his pain. He's right in at least this sense. We have ignored Palestinian suffering for far too long. What does it mean that the white West was unmoved by the Nakba when the British colonial occupier suddenly declared part of Palestine to be Israel in 1948 and 700,000 Palestinians were driven from their homes into welter and waste, into refugee camps and open-air prisons? Over 10,000 Palestinians were killed in this insurgency, but we weren't moved. We didn't say in those days, nor do we say now, the Palestinians have a right to self-defense, or they must secure their borders against insurgents. Some of these early Zionist soldiers are still alive. In interviews from last year, they described rounding up Palestinians into cages, burning them to death with flamethrowers, gathering them up and raping them and shooting them until the clip ran out changing the magazine and starting up again. And they laughed as they spoke, even as they admitted they were haunted. I was struck by how each one of them laughed. One said he took no prisoners, clarifying, being so particular to say that this meant he killed everyone who surrendered, even children. This originary violence of the conflict, rooted in the realities is rooted in the realities of Western colonialism. Jews, Muslims, and Christians lived alongside one another in the land, not perfectly, but manageably, until the imposition of a colonial state, using the explicit language of colonization to create something of use to the white West, which refused to let Jewish people inside their borders en masse. So Palestine was made to bear the burden of European and American anti-Semitism. James Baldwin wrote this. He said, The state of Israel was not created for the salvation of the Jews. It was created for the salvation of Western interests. This is what is becoming clear, and I must say it's always been clear to me. The Palestinians have been paying for the British colonial policy of divide and rule and for Europe's guilty Christian conscience for more than 30 years. During a university talk, he said, I wish I could say it differently, but I would be lying if I did. Israel came into existence as a means of protecting Western interests at the gate of the Middle East. Joe Biden affirmed this in 1986 by saying, it's the best $3 billion investment we make. Were there not an Israel, the United States would have to invent an Israel to protect her interests in the region. So what does it mean when Jewish and Palestinian pain is a pawn for our interests? What does it mean when the dispossession of a people registers as a minor moral annoyance, as something we wish, we wish were otherwise, but as an acceptable expense for our desired reality? What does it mean when the hundreds and sometimes thousands of Palestinians who die under occupation every year Hundreds and sometimes thousands who are killed by Israeli military, police, and settlers, who are incarcerated and tortured, 
who are humiliated and denigrated at checkpoints, whose homes have been stolen or bulldozed, who are unemployed and unprotected and afforded no significant rights, whose children have no futures beyond occupation, who die under these conditions at unfathomable rates, what does it mean for none of this to have registered for us like October 7th registers for us? What does it mean for Palestinian suffering and death to be almost completely illegible to us? Like a word in another language that has no meaning to offer us. Like the inscrutability of Arabic script. We can see it, but it doesn't speak. No one is hiding it. But we don't speak a language that affords Palestinian suffering any meaning. Or even beyond that, we might believe they deserve it for having the nerve to fight back against their dispossession, for not simply accepting our colonial annexation and resigning themselves to the borders we've drawn for ourselves as the colonizing West. We say if you're going to resist, resist how we like it. Demonstrate and march and agitate for the attention of the international community. You'll be shot and imprisoned for it, but keep at it. Maybe some good will eventually come of it, and then we, the U.S., veto every UN resolution that attempts to hold Israel for an internationally recognized illegal occupation. We've done this 43 times. But keep trying, we say from the other side of our mouths, biding our time until that colonial project is as developed as ours, where so many of the colonized are dead that they pose no threat. So we can then feel a twinge of conscience and acknowledge a violent past as if it's no longer present. And remember the cultures that we destroyed with sideshow reenactments and sports team mascots. We have the nerve to tell colonized people how to resist, even as they resist us. We see them killed and maimed and tortured and humiliated in mass for years, and it means nothing. They return the violence, and suddenly we find our voice. Think about Jesus on the cross and those who stood and watched him writhe, hanging from nails, skin shredded to pieces, and we watched. Blood was draining from his body, and we watched. Anyone could have stepped in and stopped the horror, but we just watched. Because to interrupt the violence would have meant taking responsibility. It would have meant the soldiers acknowledging their active role in this ancient act of terrorism. It would have meant the disciples taking responsibility for refusing to testify on his behalf, to defend him before the crowd and allowing him to be murdered by the state without dissent. And so here, in Israel, in Palestine, the innocent are crucified. And we could interrupt the crucifixion and take those precious bodies down from the cross before they expire if we would take responsibility for our anti-Semitism, our anti-Arabism, our colonialist and imperialist politics. We could take them down from the cross if we ordered a ceasefire and an end to occupation. We could take them down from the cross if we began to regard all of the life in the Holy Land as holy Let's rescue Christ's body from the cross. 
with urgency. Then let's nurse his wounds. Let's repent and ask for forgiveness and restore ourselves into relationship with him if he would take us. I know your hearts, loved ones. I've talked with so many of you over these past two weeks. I know that whatever your historical or political framings of the conflict are, your desire is for peace. We may disagree about what that means and how we arrive at our mutually desired destination, but let's cling to this commonality. And as we move forward together, remember to attend to the voices of the oppressed. Go to the weakest ones and hear their articulations of the hope they carry. We have no right to be hopeless because they are not hopeless. We have no right to abandon struggle simply because we can't see victory in this moment. We press on into the unknown, but led by these kindred principles of love and liberation, gathered ever deeper into the mystery of God's love and justice made flesh, dwelling among us. And we will make peace with one another toward the new creation. Let me close with words stronger than mine, which we've already read from the prophet Isaiah. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating, for I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For the one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth and the one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. Before they even call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, but the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. God willing, and amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust you were fed as well as challenged by the content. This audio archive supplements a video library of the entire service. The video, along with music from our internationally recognized gospel choir, is available on firstchurchbrooklyn.org. We provide multi-access worship options both in person and online Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. We are live in the sanctuary, as well as firstchurchbrooklyn.org and the church Facebook page at facebook.com firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Visit firstchurchbrooklyn.org for more information on both online and in-person worship. Remember that now, as always, you are loved.